Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 60, the one about customer choices, standout expertise, crypto, and the TV series Squid Game. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back with more news, tech content and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, Malena Mission, to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast and the author of Cats, Mats and Marketing Plans, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, my co-host is also a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Thank you very much, Roger. Viewers and listeners, this is episode 60, 60. Yes. Wow, number 60. It has a resonance about it. <laughs> no, I would agree. It just feels uh, very, very special. So we're going to try, as we always do, to brighten your week in terms of potentially the light and weather condition. But also, I must confess, Roger, very tired this week. It's been a busy one. So let's see what we can do to also bring up the energy. Yeah, let's keep the energy going. And you've got to keep the energy going until the final section of the show, because as always, film marketing, we're going to talk about, actually, this week, Pascal, we're going to talk about a TV series, aren't we? We are. Yeah, Squid Game. Squid Game. Now, I'm sure that uh, pretty much everybody listening to the podcast today will have heard of Squid Game. So we have got a fabulous conversation to have later on about this amazing TV series and the marketing that went with it. Super. Thanks very much, Roger, for doing all the hard work behind the scenes. So let's begin with In the News. Hasbro has launched its first live stream shopping event featuring product demonstrations, special guests, a gift wrapping expert and pledging a donation to the Toys for Tots charity. Wow. Well, in a public disagreement over fees, Amazon has confirmed that it will stop accepting Visa credit cards in the UK from the 19th of January 2022. Pinterest TV has gone live. Every Friday, creators will broadcast original and shoppable sessions offering exclusive deals to viewers just in time for the holiday shopping push. Well, let me introduce you to Vimeo Events. That is the name of the latest product offered by the video platform hosting your videos with everything you need to promote, produce and repurpose virtual events according to their great looking website. Anchor FM is making paid podcast subscriptions available to 33 countries and Spotify has launched a new partnership with Bad Robot Audio, Bad Robot, and a new division from the company formed by filmmaker J.J. Abrams. Wow, money.co.uk and Trustpilot have announced the most and least trusted consumer brands on the planet. The losers are Facebook, Activision Blizzard, Electronic Arts, Virgin Media, Hermes, Adobe, Comcast, Dell and Twitter. Major British retailers including Homebase, Boots, Ocado are planning to give online shoppers cash back in Bitcoin in a loyalty scheme operated by open banking firm Mode. And finally, three high-tech super homes with AI worth more than half a million pounds each are to be demolished after they failed a building inspection by Cambridgeshire County Council. <laughs> Fantastic, fantastic. Quite a lot of live video and live stuff going on in the news this week, Pascal. Absolutely. And um, I think we all need a gift wrapping expert in our lives because I don't know about <laughs> you, but I can't do it. I mean, people can tell when it was, it wasn't, it was Denise and not me doing the wrapping. 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen some fantastic job descriptions this year. I remember back to seeing that marketing Godzilla um, advert, but a gift gift wrapping expert. Well, every company has one, don't they? Probably so can, sitting on the board as well. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, we, when sorry, we're going to go on to this one. When you um, wrap presents uh, and you cut the paper, are you a glider with your scissors or are you a cutter? I'm a cutter. I'm a oh. cutter. If I glide, I go wonky. <laughs> I'm a pretty good glider. That's as far as I can take my gift wrapping expertise and then I have to pass on to Denise to do all the kind of folding neatly and putting all the sellotape and so on. But on the most um, more serious note, let's begin with this announcement from Amazon who mm. will stop accepting Visa credit cards. And they are also looking into what they might do in the US. And that's quite a significant rift in the relationship, isn't it? Yeah. Now, this is interesting because by a complete coincidence, I was reading an article about this yesterday, and I'm, I would probably have to do a little bit more research, but I think that this is one of the consequences and one of the sunlit uplands of Brexit, to be perfectly honest. Before, when the UK was part of the European Union, the there was a, a Europe-wide rule which put a cap on the level of credit card fees that credit card providers charge the vendors. And of course, when the UK left the European Union, and that rule no longer applied to the UK, the UK banks who issue Visa cards have quite happily stuffed up the fees for vendors. And this apparently is Amazon saying, sorry, UK um, banks, you've put the fees up too high. That's why we're stopping using these credit cards. Now, it sounds plausible, doesn't it? Uh, I would have to go into it in a little bit more detail, but all the news we've seen seems to be blaming Amazon for being um, the uh, baddie here. But potentially, it's actually the banks that have caused this. On this occasion, I would agree with you. For for once, Amazon could be actually leading the charge on behalf of also small businesses who would mm. have been hit by those charges too. So I just thought it was a very interesting news item to just pick up, A, because we are approaching a time of year where there's going to be a lot of online purchases. Um, a lot of it would be motivated by the live streaming events across so many different platforms. But for Amazon to not be afraid to literally make it, as I said, a very public disagreement and who's going to give in first would be fascinating. But that, to me, is good news for small traders as much as a big giant like Amazon. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And let's face it, the banks often don't play play fair, do they? They have a bit of a, bit of, um, a reputation for not playing fair. So, yeah, go for it. Go for it. I wanted to get your reaction on this news about Anchor.fm. Uh, Roger and I have mentioned the platform on the uh, marketing tech and apps. I think it's a wonderful way to get started with um, podcasting. But with the purchase of Anchor.fm by Spotify, the additional features and what you can do with this platform means that you could stay with it beyond being a beginner in the world of podcasting. And I wondered whether this idea of the paid podcast subscription is almost a way to provide audio online courses without all the hassle of learning 
a, a new platform or how to kind of create you know, the, the payment systems and so on. You just continue to use what you've been using for a while. You just make this available through a subscription and provide, obviously, in a context of, for me and you, B2B, online courses or access to VIP uh, knowledge. And I just find it fascinating that sometime a platform like Anchor.fm will go out and say, oh, you know, we're going to allow you to charge for your podcast. But actually, I feel so narrow-minded. Open up the possibilities, as I mentioned, to online courses and more. Yeah, I mean, podcasts have always been free, haven't they, Pascal? That's the problem with this, is that you know, I can't think of a podcast that you actually have to pay to subscribe to. You not, not, not even some of the really, you know, sort of top league ones like Entrepreneur on Fire or something like that, which have millions and millions and millions and millions of listeners. You know, you would think that he would be saying, "Okay, if I even charge a dollar a week for Entrepreneur on Fire, I could make an absolute fortune." But there's always been this unwritten rule, hasn't there, that podcasts are free? And you know, I'm pretty sure that if we put a fee on this podcast and I put a fee on the marketing and finance podcast, the majority of the people who currently listen for free probably wouldn't pay it. Now, that's not because they don't value the content. It's just that I just think podcasts are free. So I think you're right. I think it's an opportunity, but it's probably, as you say, to create something slightly different on that podcasting platform that people pay for, as opposed to the basic podcast. So you could say, okay, um, the Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast is free, and it always will be. But if you want to, if you want to subscribe to the Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast, a film marketing course or film direction course, then that will cost you whatever it might be in dollars or pounds per week or month. A film marketing course now. Ah, That's so interesting. <laughs> so seed, seed sowed there, Pascal. So I've been very interested for viewers and listeners to get back to us about this idea of a paid podcast subscription is the label, but actually, can we go beyond that and invent a different audio experience? Finally, this news about British retailers such as Homebase, Boots and Ocado planning to create some form of a reward scheme using Bitcoin and similar cryptocurrency. What do you think? Is it just some brands who were convinced by the marketing team to jump on the bandwagon, or is it actually quite a smart move? Gosh, who knows? I mean, yes, it probably is definitely something they were persuaded to do by the marketers telling them to jump on the bandwagon. Because let's face it, Bitcoin and blockchain and NFTs and metaverse, and I'm actually going to come on to that a little bit later in the show when we get to marketing tech and apps, Pascal. It's just the big marketing toy at the moment. Everybody's talking about it and everybody says it's going to be the next big thing. And I'm just not convinced that the average man on the street going into boots, going into home base, even really understands what Bitcoin is or or actually cares about it. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people who might like to have cash back in Bitcoin, but I suspect that the majority of people would just like to have their cash back in the in in like Tesco vouchers or home base vouchers or boots vouchers or just good old-fashioned hard cash um i think i think the majority at the moment i'm not saying that this is forever but at the moment i just don't think the average man on the street really cares and uh, what, what is interesting and when i was reading this um this news item and then i also scrolled down the, the web page to the comments and you should see the comments from obviously the big big fans of the cryptocurrency 
And what I will say to all of them, no matter who you are, whether you're just an individual or you're professional, I think you need to understand that the reason why potentially your discipline, you know, of cryptocurrency, blockchain and bitcoins and more, is just not hitting the mark is because of the language. I mean, if you go on those official websites, if you try and understand and read about it, the language is just completely off. And then on, on top of which the comments were so scathing about, you know, oh, well, nobody understands it. I understand it. There was one guy, Roger, who said you know, that he was happily sitting on more than half a million pounds in value in Bitcoin. And my reaction to that is, if that were true, what on earth are you doing wasting your time on the website, <laughs> having a go at those who don't understand Bitcoin, instead of just enjoying life in general? So I think, unfortunately for me, it's just, you know, history repeating itself about the latest new Shining toy. It will settle. It will obviously do better. But let's not forget that at this moment in time, as we are recording this, there is a very, very um, public um trial going on with uh, the alleged creator of Bitcoin, um, which actually, when he was taken to court, was wearing a, a tracksuit top bottom and a mask. Very, very evocative of Squid Game. So all I'm saying to our lovely friends who are behind Bitcoin, cryptocurrency and blockchain, you need a new PR man behind it because it's not working at the moment. Anyway, let's slow things down and move on to the content spotlights. Now, every week, Roger and I surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb, an article, a podcast, a video that can help us reflect what it means to be a marketer in today's economy. So, Roger, what have you got for us this week? Well, this week, Pascal, we are going back to Marketing Week. Um, now, don't worry, it's not a Mark Rickson article. It's not a Mark Rickson article. This week, it is an article by Helen Edwards, my namesake. Now, Again, it's one of those ones that just caught my attention. The headline is, Reducing the friction of too many choices makes your buyer's decision easier. The subheading is, Marketers might not like the idea of cutting down their ranges, but reducing choice is one way to stop micro-frictions getting in the way of a sale. And actually, Pascal, it was this term micro frictions that got me thinking and got me wanting to read this article. And it's actually really, really interesting. And as soon as I started reading it, I realized just how absolutely correct Helen is. Now, she she starts with, by telling a story that her local waitrose has stopped selling plastic parrots carrier bags at the self-service checkouts. So you literally either have to have your own bag or you've got to carry the, the um, items of shopping in your hands and or balance them, whatever it is, but there are no bags. But she says that when you go to pay, the little box pops up saying, how many bags have you chosen? I.e. they haven't fixed the till to fit in with the policy of not offering bags anymore. And she says, literally, it takes you about three or four seconds to, to press zero and enter to tell the till that you haven't got a bag. But she says, that's annoying. And the problem we have these days is we have lots and lots of those, what she calls micro frictions. And it could be, you know, the thing where you, you and I know this because we've had it on the show before. Pretty much every time you go onto a website these days for the first time, you get that GDPR thing popping up saying, are you happy to accept cookies? Or, you know, we love your data and we protect your data. Do you agree? Click, click, click. And these things on their own 
do take microseconds to fix, but over the course of a day, it just adds more and more frustration to buying processes, reading news websites, this, that, and the other. And what she's saying is that these mount up and make people really frustrated. And if you then, when people actually get to the proper buying decision, whether they want a certain brand of toothpaste, whether they want to buy a certain course on a website, if they suddenly find there are so many options, and you know, we as in, as marketers get encouraged to create loads of different options these days, don't we? She just says that adds to the frustration that's been building up through all of these micro frictions. And so the article really just goes into how can we strip all of this back? Now, obviously, waitros need to fix their till. Uh, and she uses a few other examples of banks which ask you the same questions a couple of times depending upon where you are on the website. And yet these things can be fixed. But what she's saying is that when you're putting your products together, when you're putting your courses together, when you're putting your online offerings together, it's absolutely okay to reduce the number of options that you give people. Because actually, if you reduce the number of options, it's possibly more likely that they will buy from you. Whereas if you give them a whole plethora of stuff, and they've also had a bad day clicking on all those cookie notifications, then it's like they'll just say, do you know what? Can't be bothered with this today. And they go away and you'll miss the sale. And and that's pretty much it, Pascal. That That's the article. And um, there's some really good stories in there, some really good good um, examples. But I, th I think it really just made me think. I hadn't really appreciated how these micro frictions can build up and be so frustrating. But I do think as well it's very important for marketers to often sit back and think, what can we take out as opposed to what can we add? Because we do love adding stuff, don't we? And sometimes adding stuff might feel like we're making it better, but in reality, we might be making it worse. Do you know the timing of uh, your selection is impeccable because, of course, we are reaching a point in our calendar year where there would be an increase in a desire to purchase. I know with the pandemic, people are saying, I want this Christmas to be so much more enjoyable and better than last year. And I don't think that's going to be particularly hard uh, across you know, the nation. And this idea of the micro friction that are still present day, weeks, and months later also suggests, therefore, that in organization, large and small, people are just not walking in the shoes of their customers. You know, they're not doing the, the customer journey because if you just you know, literally went early one morning, and as we used to do back in the days, remember when we used to go to work, but then literally park the car further away and walk to the building and discover, for example, as simple as the letter that, that was in a car park, and then the reception was not quite right. And, and then you just walk your way through the customer experience. That was before the internet. And of course, you can do the same with the internet or that kind of uh, in-between experience with um, waitrose. I mean, give another example for me of micro friction, which is usually comes with automation. And as you know, my famous saying, you know, automation will often make you look dumb. So I was invited to speak um, at an event some time ago. That event was cancelled um, you know, for, for reason which I think would be a combination of low numbers, COVID and so on and so forth. But I still got a survey asking me what I thought of the event um, this morning. 
And these are all those little micro moments where your uh, perception, I suppose, of the organisers and really behind it is just being eroded. And to your point, if that happens often enough, then you're left with a feeling that maybe uh, they can't be trusted. So, you know, the, the, one of the news we read out of that survey from Trustpilot, whereby the reason why a brand it becomes the least trusted, I think, is because the experience is probably full of those micro friction as opposed to one major letdown yeah absolutely absolutely so yeah helen well done that was a great yeah, article that really got me thinking so pascal what's your <laughs> content spotlight well another article who got me thinking i hope he'll do the same for you and our viewers and listeners so this article is written by nate need from readwrite.com a platform that you introduced me a, a few weeks ago now nate is a uh, entrepreneur investor uh, consultant strategist, is a CEO of SEO.co and a few other organizations. And he wrote an article that literally made me stop for a moment where it reads, expertise is dead, how to stand out when everyone's an expert. And this is something you know I've explored, I think, in other segments of the, the show. And I wanted to go back to it, supported by the article, which is very well structured. But um, what Nate is arguing is that where we are in 2021, and where what has happened with regard to this desire by customers to inform themselves by consuming content, it has led to an overabundance of self-proclaimed experts. And this is obviously a very polite version to say what you and have said on this show as well. And I think for me, as someone that is operating in the knowledge industry, which is a case with you and many of um, uh, people following the podcast, it has become uh, an issue whereby... I will, on occasion, particularly through the virtual uh, events and more, be alongside others who will proclaim to be experts. Sometimes they even are introduced as the guru. And within moments, you can tell that that's not the case. And so the article speaks between asking the question, but why has it, um, it happened? And then what can we do about it? All of us who actually, potentially, we're not even proclaimed to be experts, just want to do a good job and help our customers. So... A couple of things that he's hinting at, which is, once again, the, the customers are almost pushing everyone to proclaim to be experts to get at least to be considered. And this idea of the correlation between the more visible you are, the more you're reinforced to perception that you are an expert. And that's led to a lot of, um, I suppose, abuse of practices like content marketing, SEO, social media, and all the strategies whereby those who are, I suppose, honest and behave ethically do practice the, um, you know, those, uh, apply those activities. But then those who desire to fast track their perception of expertise will do it too. And sometimes, as we know, book the services of ghostwriters and call centers in India and other parts of the world. So, hmm, what do we do? How can we still thrive in a world where expertise is dead, according to, to Nate? So, a couple of advice is giving. First thing is understand and review the competition with a view of doing things very differently. So, if you believe that, A, you have to compete against the real experts and then the self-proclaimed experts, the likelihood is they are copying each other. So can you observe what they do, whether you're finding maybe the gaps in their strategies or even to do strategies in advance of the trend, as you've done many years ago with podcasting and, and many other things, is also saying that it is less logical and plausible to be an expert at everything. 
So maybe you need to narrow down your expertise. You maybe want to look at a niche or a specific aspect of what you do because of this background in marketing. It was saying, you know, to claim yourself to be a digital marketing expert is probably not as helpful than to find a unique facet of digital marketing and claim the expertise in that way. And this and one thing that he said, which you and I have explored before, is real experts show that they are experts. They don't tell others that they are experts. And I love that a lot. So they say that actually, whilst yeah, the label is still content, the form of content and the manner which you go about content creation, content marketing, is about showing, not telling, which I think is a big, big difference. Because I mean, you and I've seen many articles where essentially it's a pseudo advert. So, you know, the experts, as we know, they go deep and they are thorough and detailed in exploration of the subject matter, where self-proclaimed experts go very shallow and usually move on to the next thing, to the next shiny object. One thing that is suggesting we don't do enough, all of us, let's call ourselves the real experts who paid our dues and have the battle scars, is we do good content over time, we do publish it, but what we don't do enough is syndicate that content and mm -hmm. having that content published in third-party kind of platform for more validation. And the final thing we should do is prove our claims through data crunching, through case studies, through examples, and so on and so forth. So I just think it's a lovely article to get through. It makes you think, it makes you reflect, and it also maybe suggest, let's be careful. Uh, the self-proclaimed experts who are copying us, we need to find a way to create more distance by doing things differently. Yeah, this is this is so good. I mean, I'm going to read this um, after the show because there's so much of what you said that I agree with there, and and you can really dive deep into this subject. Now, I'm, I'm sure I read once that to be a true expert, you actually have to practice something for ten thousand hours. Now, if I put that into context, as you know, Pascal, I teach fitness classes as a side hustle I have been doing for about nearly 20 years now but I bet and I've got a spreadsheet by the way I bet if I went back through my spreadsheet and counted up all the hours of classes that I've taught in nearly 20 years I guarantee it probably isn't 10,000 yet and that puts it into context if that's the true figure of real expertise then it's very difficult to get to that real genuine level of expertise and maybe this was written that that, that statistic was created by an academic who probably has invested 10,000 hours into something but at the moment you know the auntie mabel from down the street is an expert on vaccines and you know george from the uh, georgian dragon he's an expert in cryptocurrency and you're absolutely right i think social media and and, and communications platforms these days give people the confidence to to claim that they're experts just because they've heard opinions and opinions isn't expertise is it and i think that that's where we've got to try and move on from um and, and <laughs> again it, it does make me laugh you know when clubhouse went mental at the beginning of the year and became so popular it wasn't long before people were publishing those clubhouse courses for 97 dollars and those people who put those courses together, they're not clubhouse experts. They're just jumping on the bandwagon. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that other than let the buyer beware. But, 
yeah, I think this is really good. So we've had two articles this week which really start getting you thinking about a couple of really important facets of buying um, psychology. No, very much so. So big thank you to Alan Edwards and Nate Dean need sorry to really make us think. And that's what we like about the content spotlight. We slow down a bit, we reflect on this and we use it, you and I, for our, the work with our clients, with our strategy sessions and more. So it's excellent. Well, let's get practical with the marketing tech and apps. So, Roger, have you found ways to make life easier for all of us content creators? Well, I don't know about whether I've found ways to make life easier. Maybe to, ha- to make life a little trickier, actually. Um, earlier on, we talked about Bitcoin and we talked about blockchain and all of that sort of thing. And, and I alluded to the fact that it's the biggest shiny toy now in the marketing sphere, along with NFTs and the metaverse. And I have to say, I sort of sat back and thought, you know, Maybe I've come across sounding quite negative about these subjects recently, and maybe I'm I'm more negative about the people who jump on the bandwagon and and, and do all the broadcasting than about the actual technology itself. I do think that eventually these technologies will find a very very important place within within the economy. But I did think it's probably about time that I did a little bit more of my own investigation and my own work. So I thought I'm going to buy some cryptocurrency. So how do I do that? Well, there are plenty of apps that you can download to do this. And I came across one which is called Coinbase. Now you can buy that you can use this on um, a website or you can download apps to iOS or or Android. And I have to say, it's extremely well encrypted. The security process you actually have to go through to register with this thing is really quite outstanding, Um, just as strong, if not more so, than any bank that I've ever applied for. So I think that it feels quite secure. So Basically, just dive in and start playing around and looking at all of these different cryptocurrencies. Now, of course, Bitcoin is the big one. That's the one that everybody talks about. But there's Ethereum as well, and there's there's all sorts of others. So I thought it's about time that I see try to see how it works. So I bought some Bitcoin. Have a guess how much I bought. Uh, did you put twenty quid worth of bitcoins? Ten quid. Ten. Okay. Quid. So <laughs> you can you can you can tell, can't you, that I'm a little bit risk averse. But I thought the good thing about a tenner is that it's easy to multiply it by a hundred or a thousand to actually see what the effect would have been if you had in, invested a larger amount of money. So I put ten pounds in. Now this is live, so this is my iPhone and this is the app, and I'm going to go in now and find out how much my ten quid is worth today. Now, the last time I checked this out was last night about 9pm, and my £10 was worth £9.17. So I'm going to go in here and have a look now. I'm going to click on the portfolio. Ah, oh, you see, I've made a bit, bit more of a gain here. My current amount is £10.13. So it's gone up from £9.20 uh, yesterday at nine o'clock to £10.13 today. Now, if I go back, I've had this just for over a week, Pascal. The lowest it went was about £7.20, and the highest it got to was about £13.50. Now, if I do that maths and add on a couple of zeros to that, if if I'd invested £10,000 instead of £10 and I'd got out at that 
peak when it was at um, what would have been 13,000. I would have been pretty happy, wouldn't I? I would have made, you know, um, three grand literally in the space of a couple of um, hours. However, of course, if I hadn't got out at the peak and I got panicky and came out when it was worth seven uh, seven hundred instead seven thousand instead of ten thousand. Then I would have felt particularly upset. So this shows that crypto is incredibly volatile. It's incredibly volatile, and I think that's the problem: is that a lot of people are, are viewing this as an investment as opposed to a currency, and they're in there because they want to be able to sell it when it gets to 13,000 or 13 pounds, depending upon how much you put in, rather than losing it when it when it goes down. But this is actually a currency. It's not really an investment. And, you know, last week I, I gave um, Gary Vaynerchuk a bit of a slagging off for his gobbledygook interview with um, Zuckerberg. I actually watched another uh, Gary V chat about crypto last night, and he was actually, for once, quite lucid and quite um, focused on this problem. And he's saying, you know, this is not really an investment, but that's what everybody sees it as. And if that is the way it goes, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money that they haven't got, and that's a big problem. Uh, so actually, kudos for Ga Gary V for actually pointing out the issues there. But I thought it was important for me to dive in and try this. And, you know, £10 up and down is absolutely fine. And I will resist the temptation to put £10,000 that I haven't got, by the way, into it uh, to see if I can... <laughs> see if I can make any money on top of it. But it just goes to show, you know, it can work, but it's risky. So the second thing is that once you've got some Bitcoin or some Ethereum or whatever, you can start buying these NFTs, these non-fungible tokens. And, you know, we've seen a lot of hype about this. We've heard of the CryptoPunk. You know, the CryptoPunk is a digital punk made out of pixels that people have bought and these things are going for hundreds of thousands of dollars and these nfts effectively reflect your ownership of that crypto punk so effectively i could i could draw a little sketch on a piece of paper and i could sell an nft for that sketch and whoever buys it technically owns that sketch i'd probably keep the sketch put it in my drawer but they are technically the owners of it and again it's gone absolutely ballistic so the 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 app that i found is called open nft marketplace and actually it's a really good app and it links to apps like Coinbase so that you can actually do the transactions. But what I've found is exactly what you said in the news is that these people selling these NFTs, the language is absolute gobbledygook, techno babble, jargon, and it's so confusing and so difficult to understand. And that's a big problem. And again, Gary Vaynerchuk in this um, uh, interview I was watching last night, He's saying everybody keeps going on about this great community that's being built up around NFTs and lots of people are really getting into it. And he says the actual bottom line is that it's still all about the money. Just like people are seeing crypto more as an investment as opposed to an actual currency, which is what it's designed to do. NFTs at the moment is all about the money. And he says I can guarantee that apart from a few genuine individuals, 
if the money wasn't there, you'd see your community disappear overnight. So don't be fooled that there's a fabulous community around all these NFTs. It's all about greed and it's all about money. And that was from Gary V, not from me. That was from Gary V. So you've had a rant about um, blockchain and Bitcoin. I've had a rant, but give these apps a try. Put 10 quid in or 20, Pascal. You were um, willing to go double what I <laughs> You know, put 20 quid in and have a play with it. it. It's it's interesting. It's interesting to see how it works. No, and this is what we should all do. I'm thinking about the industry that is marketing and sales and, and business development. We need to experiment for ourselves. But I think in terms of um, the language, you and I are correct. You know, that you go on those websites, you listen to the interviews and the comments, and apart from the rare occasion, to me, it makes sense that someone should be suspicious when the language is not simple. And from that point of view, and if I may just say from what I've seen of the NFT art, all of it looks pretty ugly to me, so I won't be buying anything <laughs> soon. But I will certainly experiment. Thank you very much for pointing out the two platforms. So, well, I must say that I went on a... Um, I suppose a similar research project and experiment, but I will say mine was nowhere near as adventurous and exciting as yours. So I've realized, talking to customers and looking what's been happening in the last few weeks, virtual, as in me delivering uh, sessions from one to one to one to many uh, via uh, Zoom in particular, is going to continue for some time. And I was thinking, you know what, even I need to make the Zoom experience a bit better. I need to find a way to make sure that um, you know we bring something a bit different. So I went on the Zoom Apps Marketplace, which was mentioned uh, a few weeks ago on this uh, segment of tech, um, marketing tech and apps, and I went through every single app on the marketplace one by one. And I have to tell you, it was very, very tedious. And once again, the language describing those apps was just bloody awful. But there are two that I got really excited about for what I call the post zoom event experience so usually you and i would do some uh, consultancy or would do a presentation that kind of things and then typically what the organizers would do is send a recording to the zoom session and then people have to fend for themselves to almost remember or rediscover the most important or the most um, interesting points i came across this um, kind of add-on um, software solution called Fathom, F-A-T-H-O-M. And Fathom is a Zoom meeting notes creator with a difference. So this is what happens. You launch your Zoom meeting. Once again, Roger, it could be one-to-one. -one, it could be a training session with, with a, a few or many. And what you can do, in addition to the normal Zoom recording, you can record a version whereby you can color code the different elements of your presentation. And you can also give them names. So you could say, so this is a tactic, this is an insight, this is an advice. And what it means is that when people watch the Fathom replay video, they can fast forward to the elements that you've color coded and that you've also put some annotation to. The one thing that had me completely flawed is that that's the visual replay of the video, which means that it's very helpful. But you also get some notes that have been organized against those different categories. So the group of notes around the uh, uh, tactics would be organized, and then you'll have some timestamps where you can fast forward to the right place. The um, the notes in and around uh, the Q&A at the end is organized and so on. The uh, all video is being transcribed. I mean, the whole thing is so incredibly rich. So Fathom is a newer 
kind of uh, organization and app. I've had some lovely emails from the from the, the founders, and I'm going to be a very, very keen user because from the after sales scare, and talking about this idea of micro frictions, it's there's nothing worse, isn't it? To receive a one hour of Zoom video, and then you, as the customer, have to go back through it all to discover the bits that are most uh, relevant. So Fathom Zoom Meeting Notes Creator is just absolutely amazing using color coding, reorganizing your notes, and those notes can be uploaded directly on Google Docs or on Google Gmail. And then the, the other thing that I came across is a company called repurpose.io, which is normally known for social media content to be repurposed in different sizes and so on. But when you plug it in with Zoom, what repurpose.io will do is allow you to publish as is the um, the Zoom recording, or you can go in and create some extracts. So once again, you could actually just do an extract of the key questions of the day or the key learning point of the day and share those on YouTube and make it private or make it more public by sharing it directly on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. But I suppose for me, a bit like you, was, was this side day of accepting where we are with regard to things moving on or staying the same. But what can we do to forever elevate the experience? And for me, for you, for many others out there, we are going to continue to do virtual and video-based content live and uh, kind of pre-recorded. What is out there to make life easier? And I think a very kind of clever AI-powered notes creator and an AI-powered kind of repurposing um, is what you need to have up your sleeve. Yeah, this is this is really really good, and I agree with you. You know, we we do feel as if we're in Zoom and Teams overload at the moment, um, and anything like this that can make it better, especially the repurposing thing, I think that's really really strong. And let's face it. Not many people will be bothered to do this. So again, it's a great way to make yourself stand out from the crowd. And and that is what marketing is all about a lot of the time, isn't it? Standing out in a sea of mediocrity. So be aware that these tools exist, but also be aware that most people won't either not know they're there or won't be bothered to use them. So you can use them and you can stand out. Superb. Well, as we've said before, Roger, none of this would be possible without the hard work and vision from pioneers of the recent and distant past. Let's move on to This Week in History. Yep. In 1889, the first commercial jukebox is installed in San Francisco. It was called the Nickel in the Slot and played wax cylinder records. Within six months, it would earn $1,000. Wow, well in 1972, Atari Corporation announces Pong, an early video game popular both at home and at video arcades. In 1998, AOL buys Netscape for $4.2 billion, spelling trouble for several tech companies with the acquisition of Netscape's Navigator web browser and NetCenter portal site. Mm, well, in sorry, 2013, the Day of the Doctor, the 50th anniversary episode of Doctor Who screens on BBC One, it was the first episode to feature the 12th Doctor, Peter Capaldi. Incredible, incredible. And crikey, we're two years away from the 60th anniversary of Doctor wow. Who. Um, I mean, again, of course, for those who are fans of Doctor Who, the big thing was that the first ever episode back in 1963 was delayed because the day before the first broadcast of the first episode was the day that President Kennedy was shot. And that messed up all the 
the uh, timings for the programmes and Doctor Who was broadcast the day after that um, sad event. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, inc- it's an incredible milestone. The 50th anniversary was an incredible milestone and, and we're soon to be coming up to, as I say, the 60th anniversary. And we know that Jodie Whittaker, who is the current Doctor, the first female Doctor, is ending her tenure within the uh, anniversary year. So in by 2023, we'll have another Doctor beyond Jodie Whittaker. So incredible that it's been around for so long. Uh, but the, sh- the show is is creating quite a lot of controversy at the moment, and I'm, I'm not particularly happy with the direction it's gone in. And the current new series, which we are on, and we're three episodes in, is one of the most convoluted, complicated, and badly scripted series of episodes in my opinion, in the history of the show. And it makes me quite sad that something that's been around for so long, to me, feels as if it's starting to fade away. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. I know that you and Richard and many others are big fans. It's not something that I've been able to kind of get into. I think I, I, it's not part of my culture, but also I've missed, I think, the the, the heydays, you know, from the 60s, 70s uh, and 80s. I remember, I mean, I've shared this story, when I came to the UK for the first time, in the 80s and I began to get into role-playing games Dungeons and Dragons and the others so I remember going to stores to buy little miniatures and board games and so on I remember there was one not far from where I stayed with um, my pen pal that had a massive poster of Doctor Who and I thought someone was asking the question like who's a doctor and so on so i was thinking oh that's interesting in the uk they have a game where you have to discover the name of the doctor which is perhaps to a point part (laughs) and parcel of the 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 mystery but so i walked in kind of ignored it and went straight into the dnd section of that store the one thing i wanted to mention to you is around aol but before i do so can i just say that I still don't understand to this day how wax cylinder works. You know what I mean? Like I've seen it in movies. I've seen it in, in, in photography. Someone placing a wax cylinder that then rotates on its axis and plays sound. And to me, it's like black magic. I just don't understand how that's possible. I, I get the LPs. I get even the, the one before that. I get the CDs and, and the MP3s. But the wax cylinder, I, I just don't understand how that works. Yeah. And actually, weren't 78s? which came before um, mm. vinyl, they were made out of a form of wax, if I remember rightly. It's a very, very compressed form of wax. But that's why if you drop a 78, you'd more likely smash it. <laughs> yeah, so please, viewers and listeners, if you know how that works, send, send me a message. I, I'm just perplexed <laughs> by the whole thing. So do you remember, perhaps not very fondly, because it was a nightmare when AOL tried to take over pretty much every single computer on the planet you would get a uh, computer magazine, maybe, to learn a few things or two. There would be a um, CD attached to the cover. You would take the CD, put it in your, on your computer, hoping to discover the internet. And suddenly, before you know it, AOL is all over your computer. It was like a virus, wasn't it? It was like <laughs> a legitimate virus that people quite happily took the CD off the front of personal computer world, PCW or whatever it was called, slotted it into their machine and infected their computers with Netscape Navigator. And I, I, I mean, my, my memory might be cheating here, Pascal, but it was actually quite hard to get rid of it as well, wasn't it? Oh, it sure was. It, it was hard to get it off your computer. I remember spending many weekends, um, you know, for the price of a tea and a sandwich, helping friends and family 
taking that bloody thing off their machine. Because up to that point, people have been using uh, Microsoft, you know, was, was uh, essentially is one of the companies that was fighting against it. And all they had a Yahoo, you know, that people, so to take us back um, to the 90s, there was two ways you could go on the internet. One was, was via a web portal, which I know that they don't exist to, to the same degree anymore, or you had a web browser, but in fact, it was a mini, mini portal. So you, you could use uh, Yahoo, you could use um, a BT, had their own version. So everybody was fighting for, I suppose, a um, control of how and when we would access the internet, which you could argue is not in the spirit of how it was done. And this AOL stuff was everywhere you could sometime even no longer be able to open programs from microsoft and a few others yeah yeah no yeah i i always remember that netscape causing i'm pretty sure i even had to reformat my hard drive at one point <laughs> and reinstall windows to get rid of it but that might that might be a um a different that might be a memory that i've, I've made up <laughs> Not at all i think it's pretty much you know what what, what, what happened so um so because of um Talk about friction because of that. I think they absolutely fell miserably. Certainly in the UK, I would imagine in other parts of of the world. And then, as computer systems and operating system uh, improved, then people went straight for a web browser. Shall we say, no longer a, a portal. And um, but the, the the only thing that was good, if there was anything good about the AOL system, is that they did have a box with film news. That's what I remember. That was uh, of any kind of appeal to me uh, whatsoever. Just before we move on to the next um, segment, Roger, just a quick you know kind of tip of the hat to Atari, who pretty much, although they, they've had a troubled uh, history, pretty much have invented the gaming industry. Would you say? Absolutely, Pascal. Hats off to Atari. But I have to say, when I included this um, in the history section this week, I was surprised it was as long ago as 1972 that Pong came out. I would have, I would have probably suggested it was more like 1978 or 1979. But there you go. No, no, I think you're absolutely right. Fascinating. Okay, this has been fun. But let's get back to the present with yep. the creator shout out. I absolutely love this uh, segment. So who is under the spotlight this week, Roger? Well, Pascal, this is right up your street, and it's right up my street as well. It's probably one of the geekiest things I've found for a while. And it's a YouTube channel, and it's called the Class Act YouTube channel. Now, I have tried to find out the name behind this, um, because this is a creator shout-out. I'd have quite liked to have shouted out the name of the person, but I couldn't find it. So if you are the owner of the Class Class Act YouTube channel. Get in touch and let us know what your name is, and maybe we can update the show notes at a later point and, and include the name within this. This guy does analyses, analyses of story structure of films, and he goes through the film in the classic three-act structure. And, you know, I've seen you do this in your presentations, Pascal, where you go through the setup and then you look at the, um, you know, the, 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 the big moment when everything changes and the hero's journey and all of that. But this guy goes through it almost like minute by minute and maps it onto the three-act structure. Now, it's a relatively new YouTube channel. There are only about seven films that he's done so far, two of which we have done in film marketing. So we've done Skyfall, and we've also done 
Us, which he's oh, done wow. on Chabble as well. And that's equally as good. I could just as equally chosen that for this shout-out. But honestly, it's a different way of analysing a film. It's not really a review. It's more of an analysis of the script. But, you know, we raved about Skyfall when we reviewed it and we did the film marketing segment on it a few um, episodes back. But this just opened up so much more for me about how things which were set up in the first 20 minutes first half hour are actually resolved even down to the lighting being the same and even down to pieces of props that are used early and then revisited later as well as dialogue and character development it's absolutely fascinating very geeky but i absolutely love it so i'm re i'm subscribed to this youtube channel and i look forward to seeing many more analyses of the films that we've uh, talked about in film marketing or may even talk about in the future but pascal you especially will absolutely <laughs> love this <laughs> what have you done to me I, I was thinking about you know I, I watch too much i need to sleep more and go out more but uh, i'm sold thank you very much for that this is a superb shout out so for me this is something that was introduced to me by a good friend and client marek tokarski who's working for durham university and he sent me a link to a platform called cedars.com spelled s double e d r s and cedars is an organization on a mission to to enable investors to be matched with startup businesses that they believe in and want to share in their success. So the shout-out goes to Jeff Kaliski and the team behind the Cedars Academy. I will confess that when I was sent the information, I subscribed to a webinar and I was getting some, some more information. I can put this kindly. Very often, those organizations do content marketing like um, we've discussed in this show, which is essentially just for the generation. There's no real attempt to build a community. There's no real attempt to be sincere. It's just a task that they feel they have to go through. Not Cedars. I mean, the academy and the content within the academy element of their kind of initiative is staggering the guides, the tools, the resources to help anybody, not just startups in fight and funders, but anyone in business should really look at the academy element. And of course, if you want to be involved with the main body of their work, uh, Cedars do so. But they have a startup valuation calculator, so you could even do it for an ongoing business. They have library resources, including pitch decks. They have webinar series. They have articles like, for example, seven commonly asked questions by angel investors. Well, actually, what, Roger, what you could do is take those seven questions, ask yourself, you know, how is my business doing at this moment in time? And I think there's definitely so much we can learn from the, the world of startups, even if you've been trading for several years. And for me, what I liked about it is that I feel that for that Jeff Kalinsky and, 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 and his colleagues are using content marketing the right way to truly showcase their values how they go about doing business and the sincerity that goes behind it. And for once, the content marketing effort really speaks for that organization as opposed to being something contrived or done by, forgive me, subcontractors. And you could just tell that they're not behind it. So Jeff Galitsky for from Cedars.com and particularly the Academy and all the hardware they put behind it. Sounds like a really good um, website, Pascal, and a great alternative to something like Kickstarter. Mm, no, very, very much so. Absolutely. Superb. Right, Roger Edwards. It is time yes. for film marketing. 
Roger Edwards, Squid Game, the Netflix surprise hit. Or was it a surprise? Perhaps they knew exactly what they were doing. We'll discuss marketing in a moment, but um, you watched it. What did you make of it? Well, well, it was pretty violent, wasn't it? It was pretty violent. We um, we binged watched this um, over a very few nights. I think maybe three three nights tops to watch all the episodes. It was just one of those those series which just had everything in it: a great story, great characters, motifs, design, um, the the music, everything. Just all of it was made it compulsive viewing and and the the cliffhangers on the whole were pretty pretty edge of seat stuff you know the sort of cliffhangers where you just simply cannot not watch the next episode straight away even if it's 1am you know you still feel should we just stay up and watch this next episode but that means that we won't go to bed till two o'clock ah but we can't not see that what happens you know it's that sort of thing so yeah absolutely incredible series as i say very very violent Uh, and i think that the fact that it is a south korean production uh again makes it feel unique as well um you know I've, I've i've watched quite a few south korean series and films recently and and the the subtle cultural differences are, make them really interesting and and so much different than an american production which i guess we're all used to so everything about squid games tick boxes for me i would agree as you know i've been a f- very fond of Asian cinema from many, many years. Started in the 80s and 90s with Chris Ducker with the um, Hong Kong superstars. And I would agree this idea of pure escapism being drawn into a different world altogether with their own kind of rituals and customs and so on. I find having to listen to the language spoken um, and having to also keep up with the subtitles just creates a, a, a truly immersive experience. And that add on to that, the um, stunning photography that certainly this part of the world is known for. But as you hinted at, it was also the thought and the care that was taken to the, the production, into the uh, the design, the costumes, the, the symbols, the sets and so on. We know, because of course now the story has been shared you know, over, over, through across different media, that the um, director, Rang Dong Hyuk, you know, spent 10 years of his life from concept to finally getting it uh, financed by Netflix, uh, going through many, many rejections and so on and so forth, uh, to the point where he has confessed to be truly exhausted by the experience. And whilst Netflix, of course, would be very keen to do a second season because it is about money after all and profit to be reinvested in in other productions, uh, he said he's not sure that he wants to do it. And I think he, he needs to, perhaps as a storyteller, you know, would understand that, needs to move on to something else but what has been fascinating for all of us is that when i say it was a surprise hit it was a surprise because there was not much pre-launch marketing the marketing happened post-launch once the movie was out and people were talking about it and i just think that's absolutely fascinating uh, to observe and, and discuss but the one thing that uh, I'm, I'm taking away it was a series and Sometimes it was difficult to watch, I would argue, because there was this crazy contrast between the the games, which were uh, childhood games, and obviously the severity in terms of, of people taking part as adults and pretty much killing each other. Yeah, and the the director and the writer, as you say, he's been at this for a decade trying to get this um, 
production um, produced. And I know that he's received quite a lot of criticism because people suggest that he's ripped off previous films like Battle Royale and uh, The Hunger Games, for example, which are similar concepts in that you've got a group of people and you whittle them down to one winner, and usually the the people who aren't the winners are killed off in, in the... I mean, you could even argue one of Stephen King's earliest books. In fact, I might be right in saying it was the very first book that Stephen King ever had published, albeit under a pseudonym, um, was called The Long Walk, which was a similar concept of a 100 people taking part in a game where all of them are killed one by one until there's one left. So, you know, the idea, I don't think he's ripped off the ideas. Not at all, he, no. He's just, he's, he's just, he's just adapted a, 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 a pop-cultural motif. But I think what really makes this scary is that unlike Hunger Games where, you know, everybody's in it to fight to the death. And Battle Royale's a very similar film where they're I mean, more violent, I guess, where they're fighting to the death. And, and even the Stephen King one, it's all about fighting to the death. This is, as you say, it's playing incredible, simple kids' games, really simple kids' games. And yet the penalty for failing is death. And I think that the director had said that the reason that he focused in on the kids' games is he didn't want the viewers, us, to get hung up on the complexity of the game. So they didn't try and come up with some sort of running man, you know, big glossy studio with all sorts of different rules and stuff like that. It was simple, easy to understand games so that we could focus on the emotions of the characters and the relationships of the characters, but also make us think, you know, my goodness, what if I'd been in that situation? What would I do if I picked the umbrella piece of candy and had to chisel round the umbrella shape as opposed to the triangle or the square? You know, and you're sitting there thinking, my goodness, if you get it wrong, one slip and bang, that's the end of it. That was what was really powerful for me. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the other thing that was very striking is a choice of cinematography where mm-hmm. normally, back to your point about maybe a US or European production, the image would be gritty, there would be a lot of camera movement, they, they would use camera in a way and the, the light conditions to amplify the, the anxiety. This was so well lit. I mean, it was literally, you could see everything sometime to, to very, very gory detail. And, and I think for me, what I took away is this um, analogy with game shows that we are observing, whereby a handful of very wealthy individuals are enjoying seeing a large number of uh, less fortunate individuals fighting it out. And I don't think I've shared publicly you know, my views on game shows or programs like The Dragon's Den and, and many others. But I think I saw the parallel between that, which is, Dragon's Den, a bunch of wealthy people embarrassing those who are less fortunate, and and you could argue that the, the production team is is guilty of maybe leaning in, into that. But you, know, you could say the same with uh, the X Factor, and, and you got so I also saw it was a, a kind of mirror of society and where we where we are heading and maybe a warning sign. God forbid, I don't think we'll get to that point of um, games that will put people at risk. But you know, it, it's just you know playing to 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 that thing. So and. I think people 
so, however, that there was ways in which you could still use uh, dark humor to your advantage. And as we're going to talk about marketing, many brands play to that as well. Yeah, no, it, it was definitely a massive comment about society, this whole series. Mm. I mean, the, you know, basically people who are absolutely on the borderline of financial ruin, you know, this was almost, I mean, it's a very difficult one, isn't it? But the odds of winning, I think I think I, the exact figure will elude me, but there was about 460 of them in the game at the start. And the fact is that if there's only going to be one winner and therefore 459 bodies, the odds of you being the winner are so minuscule that you wouldn't entertain the possibility of playing the squid game unless you were almost utterly on the the point of desperation. And, you know, it's almost like a assisted suicide in a way, isn't it? Absolutely. If, if you're going into it in that in, with the odds of winning. Oh, just to let you know, I'm predicting that viewers and listeners will be screaming at you that it's four, five, six, by the way, in terms of the, the number of players. <laughs> I, ne- <laughs> so, I was nearly there. I was no, nearly absolutely. There. So in terms of the marketing, we said there was hardly any pre-marketing uh, for the on behalf from Netflix marketing team. But you could argue there was hardly any post-marketing from Netflix because essentially they could let everybody else get on with their own form of communication and PR. Yeah, and I think it's important that we talk about the design. You know, you've you've already alluded to it as well. We've got the graphics, you know, the 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 overalls worn by the guards and they all have these masks some of which had circles some of which had triangles some of which had squares and those are simple motifs that people can you know they can replicate that i believe that a lot of people in halloween this year in america and the uk have been dressing up as squid game characters for halloween and that element of self promotion has just you know has helped the show to become as successful as it is, but they've also um, facilitated um, Squid Games within cities. I've seen it in Los Angeles. Was it even happened in London, where they had the red light, green light statue of oh, the girl? God. What a, that, that was the first statue. game, wasn't it? It was the very first yeah. game that they had to play, and and they've used that in real life so they've had people in los angeles playing that red light green light game with the with the girl and it's doing things like that it's real life marketing it's it's almost like role play isn't it getting the public involved and then that gets fo- filmed by instagram people it gets talked about on twitter facebook etc and it just becomes self marketing you know the the studio isn't really doing a great deal of traditional marketing but it's sowing the seeds and giving people the motifs and the design and the inspiration to effectively do the marketing for them the one the two that i remember seeing being reported in terms of being inspired by the the symbols of a squid game which by the way are very close well they are the same as uh, playstation which i thought was also interesting <laughs> although nobody has a monopoly on shapes I, i'd imagine but <laughs> So it was some um, Domino's Pizza, if you're not mistaken, when you ordered pizzas in and around the launch of Squid Game, when you open inside the lid, there was there were the symbols, but the triangle was changed into a slice of pizza. And I think there was a strap line of sort. Uh, Heineken, 
used a star symbol from one of the games and so everybody was playing to the, the, the symbols I think you're right around the the outfits people could obviously do some selfies with the different uh, different major cities uh, we did have some people knocking on the door on Halloween so we didn't know whether um, families and children would be out this year because of the, the current um, health uh, kind of uh, issues but we did buy some sweets. So later on, I thought, nobody's coming. So I started eating the sweets, of course, Roger. And then we got the knock on the door. <laughs> and then when I opened the door, there was two young children dressed like the guards from Squid Game that, with a mask. With it. And I, I was thinking, and I said to them, oh, I love the Squid Game uh, kind of reference. And I realized, you're far too young to know about Squid Game. <laughs> so I don't know whether they just went along with... Um, you know the trend, and and they saw. But I, I would like to think that their parents did not let them watch um, a Squid Game. The one that they do, and it's always the case in, in the Netherlands, because where they get people to take part in um, the game, as you mentioned, we, we mentioned that last time it was Mission Impossible or Skyfall, where they had to run across a train station and, right. and get to you know a destination on time to win the prize. And in this one, they have to play red light and green light and win prizes, including. Squid game memorabilia and all this being filmed by bystanders on their mobile phones and so on so what was interesting is that you and i have mentioned this idea of influencer marketing and how the term has just become hijacked to become so meaningless but this is real influencer marketing where brands without any prompting whatsoever from netflix carry over the symbolics and and the message and then where all you have to do is put together like a pop-up display on store and let the general public take over. Yeah, and I mean there was the one that I liked here as well is the the pop-up store in Paris where people could win a month of Netflix <laughs> if they managed to get the the shape out of the out of the candy. <sighs> um, the candy is called Dalgona. Dalgona. I, I don't know whether I've pronounced that right, but but again, it's that's one of the games. You can I get that shape out of the candy, and of course, in the series, he ends up licking it, doesn't he, to make it easier to get the shape cut out. But one of the things that I th I came across an article which I did think was quite interesting because, as you know, Pascal, I've always, always, always been an advocate of using pop culture in your marketing. You know, I'm famous for arguing with a very senior marketing director at a company when I said that the company I was working with at the time should have jumped on the bandwagon of, an, of a character dying in Coronation Street because I felt that 17 million people had watched that episode and there was a message that we could have jumped onto the back, back of. But I do believe that because Squid Game is so particularly dark... And again, I, you know, it has that comment that it's making about society and people who are struggling financially and, and men mentally and maybe even being driven to suicide. I do believe that there's a few brands that have just got it wrong. And yes, I think it's very important that we do use pop culture in our marketing because it's a great way to get exposure. But you've got to be so careful. And this is probably one of those ones where extra level of care is is necessary to make sure that you don't cross the line. No, absolutely. So when, once again, I said it was a surprise hit for the viewers, I'd imagine, I would love to have been a fly on the wall at that marketing meeting where I am absolutely convinced they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do very little. And in mm. fact, the scarcity of information from Netflix is going to be what's going to encourage others 
to carry over the message from brands who are going to play with the symbols to people doing some uh, kind of uh, squid game ev- events where you could be dressed and and take your, have your picture taken or just do enough to enable the viral marketing with some pop-up stores or some pop-up display with um, that door from the red light and green light. And so uh, crazily, for something that uh, broke all the records within a week of being released, if you look maybe at the marketing budget, it would be quite insignificant by comparison. And maybe that's the main lesson back to, you know, your desire for us to keep things simple, Roger back to understanding your audience, back to this idea of others can sometimes do a far better job than you would yourself with your marketing. These are potentially the lessons to take away from Squid Game. Definitely, definitely. And of of course, we don't know what happened in South Korea from a Mm. marketing point of view. It's difficult to research that. But I would agree with you. This is a is a, is another masterclass. We do seem to get masterclasses in different forms of marketing by looking at these films, but the motifs, the design, and the fact that they were so compelling uh, created that sort of surge of public influence, if you like, as you've described. And yeah, this goes to show what can be achieved for a very small budget when you have such strong credentials. Mm, wow, well... Sadly, this is the end of episode 60, Roger. Big thank you for being such a wonderful co-host and all the research you've done as well for this show. For you viewers and listeners, thank you for your support. Please leave all your comments and suggestions in the usual places. Until the next one, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Pintoni and he was Roger Edwards. Roger Edwards.